What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the 2021 edition of the Arnie's. We are three criminals that bleed from the eye with nothing better to do. I'm Austin Terry, and I'm joined by my best pals, Matt Johnson and Keith Baker. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing good. Like you said, it's our first show for 2021, so I'm super excited. It's a whole new year. It's not a half year anymore. We started in June, so we have the whole year ahead of us. Tons of great content, some fun plans. Happy to be back with you guys. Keith, let me bring you in. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, same thing, man. I'm glad to be back. It's 2021. I can't believe 2020 is over. That was a crazy year, and I'm uh, expecting and hoping for better things to come our way this year. Well, since it is the new year, it actually looks like No Time to Die might just be released in 2021. So we figured on today's show we would launch our new series covering Daniel Craig's James Bond. The cards are shuffled, the chips are stacked, and the martinis are dry. Let's jump into 2006's Casino Royale. Guys, any thoughts before we roll the music? I do have some thoughts, actually. Thank you for asking. This is a good one. I'm excited we're doing this series. I guess technically, Star Wars is still the only full series in review we've done so far. So we're not doing the whole Bond series, obviously. But, you know, still a good little piece of it with Daniel Craig's Bond movies. And I'm excited to do this. I'm a pretty big Bond fan, I would say. I... I grew up during the Pierce Brosnan era, and if anybody has seen those, I think the general consensus is the first one he did, Goldeneye, is pretty awesome. And then he did three more that are all garbage. (laughs) So um, Casino Royale came at a pretty cool time, you know, just a couple years after that, the new Bond, this new take. And yeah, you know, we'll get into it as the series goes on, whether we think all of his are good and where they all rank together and all that. But regardless, Casino Royale was certainly... A fresh take of the time. I saw it pretty... I didn't see it in theaters, but I saw it, you know, right after it came out and I loved it and I've seen it so many times since then and I'm still such a big fan of this movie. I I would honestly say it's a pretty damn phenomenal movie, but I do recognize it does have some issues, but I still love it despite some of those issues. Yeah, you know, you, you go back to the Pierce Brosnan days. I'd only seen... I don't know if I've seen all of his. I think I've seen Goldeneye... I've definitely seen No Time to Die. Ooh, don't you mean Die Another Day, Keith? Or Die Another Day. Too many dies. That's okay that you forgot about that one, Keith, because it does have the worst special effects I've ever seen in the movie. Yeah, that, that's the infamous one where he's um, the in ice like, age, yeah, the ice he's like surfing <laughs> in like Antarctica. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that one's yeah, bad. Yeah, that's like, with Halle Berry, yeah, that was yeah. the last one of uh, Pierce Brosnan that I'd seen. And, um. Out of Craig's films, Casino and Quantum of Solace are the ones I've seen the least out of the four. I've seen Skyfall probably the most. That's my favorite out of the four. But yeah, I was I was excited to go back and watch this one because I don't think I'd seen this one probably since I don't know oh nine maybe twenty ten. It's been it's probably been like ten so years. So I really couldn't remember too much about it. So uh, but I definitely enjoyed it. There's some things I forgot about it that. We'll get into later that I was surprised about and surprised to see. How were you guys first exposed to Bond? Because for me, when I was a kid, uh, you guys remember Spike TV? They would always run Bond marathons on the weekends. Mm. So that was like my weekend routine. And I would wake up and I'd watch like three to four Bond movies in a row on like Saturday morning. I Honestly, I guess I probably did the same thing. I didn't remember it was Spike TV, but my first exposure to them was, again, the Pierce Brosnan era. I never really watched them at home. Eventually, my dad would start like just buying DVDs he was interested in, and that's how I saw, oh my god, The World Is Not Enough and Tomorrow Never Dies, which are basically the two other Brosnan movies that nobody talks about <laughs> because they're not 
they're just bad. They're not fun bad, like Die Another Day. They're just boring bad. So I saw those. <laughs> and then as time went on, um, kind of the same thing. I would see those marathons. And I, I saw a weird number of Bond movies at friends' houses, like just different friends. You know, I guess Bond hit them too. So we would watch tons of old Bond movies over at other people's houses as well. So yeah, I've been kind of familiar with this franchise since a pretty young age. So it's been cool to grow up with it in that sense and then transition to the Craig era, which is kind of a bit more mature and adult. And I think maybe adults kind of enjoy and appreciate more. So have you guys seen any other bonds like Sean Connery or Roger Moore? Have you seen those? I don't think I've seen all of the bonds, but I've, I've seen bonds from each actor. So yeah, Connery, um, Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, and Pierce Brosnan, yeah. I think I've probably seen the most of Roger Moore as Bond, actually. I think it's because he has the most. He did so yeah. many. He did so many. What about George Lazenby? I Yeah, I don't think I've seen that one. <laughs> he was the one, right, that came, like, right after Connery, but only did one. Yeah, so I, I never saw that one. All right, well, we're going to roll that music, and when we come on back, it'll be time for Casino Royale. Let's go ahead and jump into our cast and crew here. Casino Royale is directed by Martin Campbell, who also did GoldenEye. Austin, how dare you? You're leaving out Keith and I's other favorite film that Martin Campbell directed. Keith, <laughs> do you know what it is? Of course. It's The Mask of Zorro. Oh my gosh. This guy- With Antonio Banderas. This guy only makes hits. Only makes hits. Well, he also did do <laughs> Green Lantern. <laughs> Yeah, so nobody, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> All right. And our screenplay is by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, and Paul Higgins. Our score is composed by David Arnold, along with the James Bond theme by Monty Norman, uh, featuring You Know My Name, composed and performed by Chris Cornell. And then we have Daniel Craig as James Bond, Ava Green as Vesper Lind, Mads Mikkelsen as Le Chef, John Carlo Giannini as Mathis, Jeffrey Wright as Felix Leiter, and Judy Dench as M. Nice. This is a great little, great little group here. Great little group. Well, especially since Daniel Craig is relatively unknown at this point, so I think they did make a good decision to surround him with some heavy hitters. Yeah, but even then, I mean, who are the heavy hitters here? I mean, Ava Green, I'm a big fan of. Obviously, I love Mads Mikkelsen. Jeffrey Wright, I love. And Judy Dench at the time, I think I'd probably only seen her playing M in the uh, in the Pierce Brosnan Bond movies. So it, it's so cool whenever movies like this hit in such a way, and then you fast forward now, I mean, literally now, we can say 15 years later, not 14. Um, and this is a pretty A-list cast, I would say. So it's always cool to see that. But at the time, maybe a bit of a risk. I think they kind of just leaned on the Bond name, which obviously nothing wrong with that. But I love this cast. I was reading that they kind of that they specifically cast Jeffrey Wright in the role as Felix Leiter because he is a little bit of an of a senior actor to Daniel Craig, and they wanted to yeah. kind of have, him, have him as a mentor. For and that's film. how that's how it felt. That just at least more comfortable in his role. So that was cool. And Mads Mikkelsen, I mean, it's cool to see him in this. Uh, he he put on a great performance in this, but and it's cool to see him play a good guy in Rogue One as Galen Erso. Oh. So that's the last thing we've seen him in. That's I true. Um, at least on the show, yeah, what we reviewed. So he's great. I do love him he's in great. these villain roles, though. Have you guys seen the Hannibal show with him? Mm -hmm. He's amazing as Hannibal. Great show. Great performer. He's always great. He's the best. And yeah. I don't love the character of Lashif by any means, but I love him as in the performance is just awesome. 
So everybody, we have a new quick little segment that I thought would be fun. I think if this works for you guys, what we're going to do is we're going to have basically in each show, we'll take turns doing this little segment. So I kind of just took a deep dive in the Wikipedia and some of the IMDb trivia, and I have just a handful of some fun little fun facts and production nightmares, if you will, um, about this movie. So I want to get your guys' thoughts on these. So this one, this is, a, this is a good one. I did not know about all these moving pieces. Pierce Brosnan fulfilled his contract by finishing Die Another Day in 2002. By 2004, over 200 actors were being looked at to play the new James Bond, including somebody that I'm a big fan of, but picturing him in this role, I can't. And also, he's a New Zealander. Carl Urban was considered, Ooh. but he never made it to the audition because of scheduling conflicts. Um, Sam Worthington was also considered, and Dugray Scott was also oh, considered. No, thank you, Sam Worthington. No, thank you. Yeah, so here we go. This one, I think, I don't know if you guys know this. According to director Martin Campbell, there was only one other actor that was even being remotely considered. Basically, they knew they wanted Daniel Craig, but there was only one other actor that they even considered like a close option. So he he was like the it'd be nice to have option. Yeah, Daniel Craig, from what I could find, he was most people's number one. He was also worth noting. He was the Broccoli family, kind of the producers who own the rights and Ian Fleming, all that good stuff. He was the number one choice. But there was someone else that people like it sounded like some people would have been fine going with. And it was Henry Cavill. Um, although the problem was. And kind of the big thing that they, you know, was kind of their, we can't do it is, even though they were going for the young Bond who was a rookie, not quite a 007, they still felt he might have been too young. He was only 22 at the time. He would have been like, yeah, you said 22, 23 yeah. years old, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's still, I I mean, if you look at the man from Uncle, though, I know that's a few years later, but he could probably nail a good Bond. I agree. Right? I think he could have. I think there would have been a way to make it work, Um, going for like a really jarring, young looking Bond right after Pierce Brosnan it would have been kind of cool. But I, obviously, I'm happy with the way they went. So yeah, so for those that don't remember, the general public hated Daniel Craig for being cast in this role. It was a a classic Keith Ledger situation. Nobody seemed to be happy about it because he was not tall, dark, and handsome like the others. He was called repeatedly in the UK media, James Bland and James Blonde before the release of the movie. Yeah, they felt he wasn't charismatic enough Right, for Bond. And, and now, funny enough, because now he's considered to be the most closely resembling Ian Fleming's original vision for Bond, so kind of fun. Speaking of casting, I was also reading that before Daniel Craig was even really considered, like a year before they were even like casting people yet, he basically just had his people release a statement saying that he'd been offered the role and it was his to lose. Yeah. So he just threw himself out there and was like, I guess I'll just go for it. Yeah. So and I, apparently I kind of he, hadn't, he hadn't even been talked to about it yet. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was so good. All right. So here's some, that was the long one. So now I just have some uh, like four or five quick hits for you guys. So here, as you guys know me, I certainly appreciated this. The only scenes in this movie involving any type of extensive CGI was the parkour sequence, the Miami airport chase, and the sinking Venice house, which was done with models and miniatures as well. So I like that. I always like practical. I like when they can do that. Obviously, now, this many years later, you can see some of those sequences where they might have used some effects. But I appreciated that they did their best to kind of keep uh, to, to do practical. I like that's what I like. Well, and that was a that was a conscious effort for, from the crew for this one, because Die Another Day was so heavily criticized Ugh. that they were like, we are not using cgi in this movie it's going to be practical no more surfboards in the arctic and honestly it's it's kind of like we, what we talked about with elf like 
at this point, this movie's 13 years old, and, and I think it still looks just as good as some movies we're seeing today. Like, I was, I was oh, surprised yeah. whenever we were researching this that it, that it was released in 2007. I'd forgotten it was that long ago. Yeah, I think it looks awesome. All right. This one I did not know. So, Le Chiffre's sadism, Bond's reaction, I guess, in the torture sequence, the stairway fight with Obano, and the opening black and white fight all had to be cut down pretty extensively to achieve a PG-13 rating instead of an R. They've talked about wanting to do an, an R-rated Bond with Craig, haven't they? They've probably talked about it, yeah, I'm sure. It's just one of those things, Bond, even though it, it is a bit like darker material, it's kind of always been this weird it's so funny because it's like spy espionage dark like tons of murder and sex but it's always been looked at as like a family property <laughs> that you have to go yeah. see with your family so and i think it works so yeah you don't have to have Tar- you don't have to have tarantino blood in every movie you see speaking well, of that tarantino keith take it away was almost considered to direct casino royale but like he wanted well, to set it i believe in the 1960s and he was only willing to work huh. with sean connery no pierce brosnan he said he would only do it with Pierce Brosnan and nobody else. And I was like, what? What a weird stipulation. <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. Okay. So here's the last few for you guys. Just run, I'll just run through these quick and you can jump in if you have any thoughts. In the shower scene, Vesper was originally scripted to be wearing nothing but her underwear. However, Daniel Craig argued that Vesper would not have stopped to take her clothes off. So they changed the scene. I was like, okay. Uh, okay. So now here's another fun one. For Daniel Craig's now iconic scene where he rises out of the sea in a pair of Speedos, many of the crew were actually out of camera range in boats because they had to fend off the paparazzi. <laughs> oh, wow. That's <laughs> funny. Uh, and here's the last one for you. This one, I was, this one was pretty cool. So the location used in the Bahamas as the Madagascar construction site was an abandoned hotel site at Coral Harbor that was under construction 30 years ago. Funnily enough, it was used to film hotel rooms for the James Bond movie Thunderball in 1965, and it was also used for the Bond movie The Spy Who Loved Me in 1977 as a camera platform with models and workshops. It is now part of an active military base. <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned Thunderball there, because I, I think Daniel Craig proved he had his own pair of Thunderballs on him. Yeah, he cannot have children. <laughs> <laughs> so this movie comes out in 2007 and makes $617 million worldwide against a $150 million budget. It launches to overwhelmingly positive reviews. It has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, making this the second highest rated Bond film on the site behind Goldfinger. Mm. And Daniel Craig's performance was praised pretty much by everyone. They felt Craig was perfectly dark and wounded, but still charming. Um, critics also liked the departure from kind of some of the more gimmicky elements of the Bond franchise. They felt that this was more of an adult movie, like we've kind of said. But the thing that they really liked about this was that this could kind of be somebody's first Bond movie. They felt like this was a great jumping on point for many new people to become exposed for the franchise. Well, that's kind of the cool thing about mm-hmm. Casino Royale is because, I mean, like we talked about at the beginning, if you've watched any of the Bond movies... It's like they're supposed to be in the same universe, but they're just so random, and he goes on so many missions, so they can, they kind of just blend together, whereas Casino Royale is ostensibly his origin, at least when in terms of becoming a double O. So it, it, yeah. is, it felt very purposeful that they were like, not only are we stepping away from the fantastical elements of Brosnan and all that stuff, but how about we just remake Casino Royale again, and we just do kind of his origin story, so it works as a jumping off point because there's so many people out there that have only seen the Daniel Craig Bond movies that never went back to the others and just watched these as they came out because Casino Royale was so accessible to everyone. Yeah. And then this film was also praised for making you care about other characters besides Bond. 
Um, they like that you actually care about the Bond girl in this movie and that the supporting cast also turns in great performances as well. Definitely agree. Agreed. So criticisms were pretty hard to find for this one, but the most recurring one I could find was sluggish pacing and a mediocre villain. Not necessarily a performance, just the villain as a whole was, was mediocre. I can agree with that. I don't have a huge problem with the pacing. We'll, we'll definitely talk about it. It's more just of where the pacing becomes so clear for me is in the third act because it feels like things are winding down, but then they don't. And I already kind of joked about it, so I'll just leave it here for now. I think Mads Mikkelsen is amazing as Lashif, but Lashif, as you get older and watch the movie more and you kind of are able to, I think, more easily track his actions and what he's doing, it is extremely comical. <laughs> he's like, oh, shit, he <laughs> he destroyed the plane. I lost all that money. Well, you know what? I'm going to win it back in Texas Hold'em. <laughs> it's like, OK. <laughs> it, it's also funny, too, because his character is like, I value trust above all else. I but know. he's like, I'm going to gamble all your money away. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he's just always seen gambling. <laughs> it's pretty funny. As far as the pacing, yeah, I will say the very end of the movie, definitely, like, I, going back to what I said earlier, I couldn't remember too much about this movie, so I for, completely forgot about the ending. Like, you think it's going to be winding down, and yeah. all of a sudden, a whole oh. other 15 minutes of just crazy action. More like 45 and, you know. minutes, Keith. This movie takes its time <laughs> wrapping up. Well, you think, like, yeah, they're on the sailboat and all that, and like, oh, it's a good ending, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then you think it's about to wrap up, and all of a sudden, they're in Venice, and buildings are collapsing, and... A whole nother plot kind of takes place that you weren't really expecting. Yeah, the torture sequence ends with Mr. White killing Lashif, and it feels like there's going to be maybe one quick wrap-up sequence, but I, I checked the time on Netflix, and there was 25 minutes left, and uh, yeah. it just... It, that's fine. It just felt like a lot. So that's kind of where. That's, and that's you. right around there is where I start to agree with the sluggish pacing criticism. Yeah. It does feel like it drags. And it's funny you say that because 25 minutes, I mean, this is a two and a half hour movie. Right. So you, you cut out, you cut down the ending and you get down to under two hours almost. There you go. All right. Well, let's jump in here. Matt, take away our movie summary. All right, everyone. This one I'll run through quick, but I am going to give a bit more detail than usual just because this is a bit of an older one in comparison to what we usually talk about. So I want to make sure everybody is reminded if you haven't watched Casino Royale in a while. But again, it is on Netflix. So go check it out and watch along with us. So here we go. Casino Royale. MI6 operative James Bond gains promotion to 00 status by assassinating his first targets. In Uganda, the mysterious Mr. White introduces Stephen Obano, a high-ranking member of the Lord's Resistance Army, to Le Chiffre, an Albanian private banker to terrorists. Obano entrusts Le Chiffre with a large sum of money to invest. Le Chiffre subsequently bets on the aerospace manufacturer Skyfleet's failure given his insider knowledge of a terrorist attack. MI6 Chief M and Bond have a falling out, which leads to Bond going solo to find corrupt Greek official Alex Dimitrios. Bond pursues Dimitrios to Miami, where he kills him and ends up thwarting the destruction of Skyfleet's prototype airliner. To recoup his clients' lost money, Lashif organizes a high-stakes Texas Hold'em tournament at the Casino Royale in Montenegro. MI6 enters Bond in the tournament because apparently, Bond, I hear you're the best at poker. And it's like, okay. <laughs> best on the force. You're the best on the force, Bond. When are the 007 agents just sitting around playing poker? I know, like, no, I know. It's such, a, it's such a funny line. Uh, they believe a defeat will force Lashif to seek asylum with the British government in exchange for information on his clients. Bond is paired with Vesper Lind, a British treasury agent protecting the $10 million by him. Obano ends up ambushing Lashif, but allows him to continue playing to win back the money. Later, Bond kills Obano after being spotted. Bond loses his stake because Lashif has been tipped off about his own tell. 
Vesper refuses to then cover the $5 million rebuy, but fellow player Felix Leiter, played by the amazing Jeffrey Wright, is a CIA agent, and he agrees to stake Bond enough money to continue in exchange for taking Le Chiffre into American custody. Bond returns to the game and wins with a straight flush. Apparently tipped off by Mathis, Le Chiffre kidnaps Vesper and uses her to trap Bond. Le Chiffre brings the captives to an abandoned ship and tortures Bond to reveal the account number and password for all of the winnings. But Bond refuses. Mr. White then bursts in and kills Le Chiffre as punishment for betraying the trust of his organization by gambling with their money. Now we get into our 25 minutes. <laughs> Bond awakens in an MI6 hospital and has Mathis arrested as a traitor. After transferring the winnings, Bond spends his time with Vesper recovering at his side and the two then fall in love. Aww. He resigns from MI6 and they run away to Venice. When M reveals the money was never deposited, though, Bond realizes his beloved Vesper has betrayed him. He follows her to a handoff of the money, where gunmen take her captive and she is killed as Bond tries to save her, and Mr. White escapes the money. Finally, M informs Bond that the organization behind Le Chiffre threatened to kill Vesper's lover unless she became a double agent, and she likely made a deal later with White, trading the money for Bond's life. Bond renounces Vesper, saying, the bitch is dead, and returns to service. Realizing Vesper left her phone to help him, he tracks Mr. White, shoots him in the leg, and 007 for the first time introduces himself. The name's Bond. James Bond. Man, yeah, so like we said, two and a half hour movie, people, means you get a long-ass plot summary, because they do not know how to wrap this one up. You know what the funny thing is, though? I tried to cut out most of that, but... There was, it actually kind of made me appreciate the movie more. I tried to cut out most of the beginning leading up to the poker game, but then I was like, if I cut out this stuff with Obano, it makes no sense why Lashif is doing this. And if I cut out the start about the stuff about the airplane, it makes no sense why he's trying to recoup the money. So I did have to read a long plot summary, but it did make me go, I do like how this movie fits seemingly random sequences together as kind of showing how Bond is just this thorn in Lashif's side, kind of like fucking with his money. So it made me appreciate the movie, but sorry for the long plots, <laughs> the plot read. <laughs> All right, well, let's go ahead and dive in here to our roundtable discussion. So just to start off, I think Casino Royale really starts off Craig's franchise right and establishes his style of Bond. It doesn't really seem like he's trying to copy any of the past Bond actors like Connery, Moore, Brosnan, and so on. And he definitely brings the fitness and action sequences to a whole new level. I think he's definitely a more uh, brutal and uh, kind of physical Bond than what yeah. we've seen from the other ones. Um, personally, though, I love Daniel Craig as Bond. I think he honestly could be my favorite. I know Sean Connery kind of established the role and, and really made it what it is today. But uh, just in terms of, of Craig's movies, I kind of enjoy them the most out of all the old ones. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Craig is definitely my favorite Bond. I think it's just the fact that he is so brutal and cold, and he just looks so great with the action stuff. But he does have that Bond charm. So it's like, I just like the duality. I like seeing whenever the action is on, how he turns that switch. But then he is kind of this this fun-loving, but he's just more quiet than the others. He's not so, like, out about it. So I kind of like that he does like to have a good time. He is charming, all that good stuff. So... Yeah, obviously, you know, with this many actors playing the role, you have to take some aspects. But again, when you look back at the older actors, it's like Connery established it. And it kind of felt like Moore and Brosnan um, just kind of kept it going, if that makes sense. 
The one person I would recommend people go to watch is, you know, the amazing Timothy Dalton. He did only two Bond movies in the late 80s, I believe. And at the time, people didn't really like them because they were said to be too dark and his Bond was a bit more quiet than the others. So it kind of feels like they took maybe even more inspiration from the two Timothy Dalton movies and uh, created their Bond off of that. So... Yeah, I love I love this version of Bond for sure. I also really like the way they give us backstory to Bond in this movie. Like they do it through other characters. Uh, and I think the coolest element of his character is, is Vesper Lynn kind of tells us, oh, it, it's very clear you just recently got out of the service. So you're haunted kind of by what you've seen in there. And now you're immediately double double O status and, and double O agents are recruited because they don't care about anybody and they're willing to give up everything for king and country. So I, I like how they kind of establish those elements of his bond without having like to do like flashbacks or anything like that in this one. Yeah, that's a great point. What's the word they use? Expendable? Is that the word they use? Yeah, basically. I mean, yeah. Well, and he, he also says uh, whenever he's arguing with M, he's like, and as you know, double O's have a very short life expectancy. So you don't have to deal with me for very long whenever they're having their argument. So it, it's pretty clear that, that double O's are, are pretty expendable to the government. I mean, and they even go into it even more than they do in the other stuff. It's like. Why would you do this? It's like, and he kind of acknowledges it's like I have a short life expectancy, but I like the lifestyle. I get to I get to act how I want to, and the kind of fucked up other side of it is, I clearly, even though I've just killed my first two people, it didn't really affect me all that much. So mine as well. So it's kind of this weird aspect that they talk about a little bit, like that doesn't affect you really, and you can kind of tell when we'll get into it with his first kill that he it clearly does affect him. Um, but he kind of, I think, just puts on the mask and keeps moving to kind of hide some trauma and the stuff that Vesper brings up, like his past. So I, I really liked the origin, like you said, Austin, without flashbacks. It was pretty cool. What about the opening, se- the black and white sequence? I really enjoyed that. I thought oh that my was God. pretty cool when they brought that in. I love it. I love it. Obviously, like the Bond franchise has its own tradition and, and some of them are really gimmicky, but I'll never get tired of the gun barrel opening right into an original song. Oh, it's so yeah. good. Yeah, it was so it's good. really good. And it's also just badass, dude. It's like this. This was important, though, because now obviously we've seen four movies with Daniel Craig as Bond and we've seen so many trailers for the fifth. But at the time, I mean, they're starting off the movie with this black and white sequence kind of making you feel like the older movies. But then... You know, once, you know, they show Daniel Craig in the in the chair in the guy's office and then it flashes back. He's like, because the guy's like, you're not a double O bond. Why are you here? You have to have two kills to be a double O. And then they basically just flash back. Oh, I've already killed one person. You're about to be my second. And then they show how he killed the first guy. It's like, oh, my God, this is our new bond. Like, this is how this guy operates. It's brutal. He drowns him in a sink. (laughs) Like, oh, my God. Yeah, because the guy's like, how did you, like, how did he go? He's like, not well. Oh, my God, dude. The line, <laughs> some of the lines of this movie are perfect. Not well. And then right after that, the guy, such like, because he has the whole gun thing. He has his gun and Bond's like, I know where you keep your gun. And then he also um, is like, well, don't worry, Bond. Something like, he's clearly about to say the second kill is much easier or something. And then Bond kills him before he finishes talking and just goes, huh, considerably. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is the best. <laughs> So good. Uh, and the opening song, yeah, we, which we get with all the Bonds, and especially the Daniel Craig Bonds are awesome. Uh, and you get some cool artists in here, like Chris Cornell from Soundgarden. Yeah. It's kind of different for him. Yeah, because um, I feel like Skyfall, and certainly even Spectre, possibly to a lesser extent, but those became, I mean, both um, 
Skyfall, the song by Adele, and then Writing on the Wall by Sam Smith, both won the Oscar for Best Original Song, and they also both were, like, number one on, like, the Billboard, like, charts, basically. Like, not only were they winning awards, but they were also the most popular song just for the general public for a while. And that happens quite a bit with Bond movies, too. Like, a lot of these original songs go on to be kind of big Billboard hits. Well, that's the thing, because I feel like... I won't talk about the Quantum of Solace yet, we don't want to do future spoilers, but... That one and this one, I think, are a bit more forgotten, but it's a shame because I think this song is awesome. I love it. I love it. You know my name. It kind of perfectly sets up the movie. It fits perfectly right after the intro. And then this whole, you know, you know my name aspect being kind of the origin for Bond is really cool. And we'll get into it later. But how they basically use this music, this song's chords, as I guess you could say the main score for the rest of the movie in place of the classic Bond theme to kind of show he it's different, a rookie, inexperienced. But then, dude, when we hit that ending and we get the Bond theme, it's like, wow, this actually led up to something. So I got to shout out Chris Cornell because he wrote the song primarily and, you know, performed it. And I think it's awesome. So Craig's Bond definitely is a rookie in terms of, of being a secret agent in this one. Um, he has some pretty brutal action, like we've said. And I think M definitely sums up his character perfectly when she calls him a blunt object, at least for this movie. I think later on, he becomes more of the smooth talking spy that we're used to. But in this one, he is for sure a blunt object. He's, I think by far, he's been voted the most fit Bond out of all the Bonds. Like He actually looks the part that he'd actually do the physical things he has to do, unlike the other ones who are kind of a little bit more flabbier than he was. Like Daniel Craig, Daniel Craig actually looks like he could, he could run up a crane and jump off of it. Oh my God, yeah. Well, I think primarily it's like, obviously there was lots of hand-to-hand stuff, but it seemed like they just focused on gunplay in the earlier versions. Whereas here, it's almost like not, like at all almost. It's like, now it's just, I'm just going to literally, I'm going to throw my gun to the side and just choke the life out of you instead because that's more well, fun but to that's, me. that's also a product of the time though too like the older ones gunplay and, and shoot em up movies kind of were more popular back then and this one is, is clearly inspired by the Bourne series yeah and the Bourne series does have a lot of hand-to-hand so they were like let's take that and work it into a bond movie as well and it worked so what were your guys uh some of your favorite action sequences we talked about the brutality of that first kill black and white scene but we have so many others so i want to hear your guys's highlights i love the parkour one with the crane and everything but i think it goes on way too long like it's really cool and all the stunts look awesome but it's a fucking long opening action scene yeah it's long i agree i think that was just to show off the the stunts the parkour. The parkour really yeah. Yeah. yeah whenever he like does that weird like high he basically does a, a high jump instead of going over a pole he goes through a little opening and then bond just runs through the, the drywall <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah. You could definitely picture Henry Cavill doing that, too. Yeah, totally, totally. Well, going back to what I said earlier, yeah, he looks fit enough to w- run up the crane, but to jump from that t- from one crane to the next and not break his ankle in that fall, and he just, like, slams into it, <laughs> that was really... I felt really bad for this. I felt bad for the stuntmen. Like, Jesus, they must have been so hurt. I also read that Daniel Craig described the entire production. He said that he felt like he was constantly in a state of pain from being injured during stunts <laughs> i was like oh my god because like you could you could feel some of those hits these guys were taking on that one keith when that guy like swung up and hit his entire like chest on the other side of that crane i was like oh my god oh like jesus i like how they take elements from from these first couple of fights and work them in later into the movie too like like we take the parkour from the crane stuff and then we use it in the staircase when we're jumping from level to level to fight Oof. later on in the movie 
The staircase is, I think, probably the highlight in terms of action because it's not very long. It's quick and to the point, and it is brutal. And there's only it's only Bond versus two guys, but the second they walk into the staircase, he takes one of them out by just throwing him from the top all the way to the bottom, and then the rest of the so fight cool. is versus the main heavy, Obano, and it's just them fighting down the entire staircase and then eventually culminating in him. They're both bleeding out, lying on the the floor next to the body of the first guy Bond threw off and just choking each other out, and it's like, ugh, Jesus. And then Vesper throwing the gun away is like, oh, this is perfect, man. It's so tense, but so good, so good. You know, we got into the action, but there's also some great non-action uh, acting scenes in this movie. Example, reading people and trying to find their toe at the poker table. Uh, Bond and Vesper first meeting on the train, which is one of my favorite dialogue scenes in the movie. Uh, and also CIA's uh, Felix, you know, also in on the game. Oh, yeah. And I think the the train scene is the highlight for me in this movie. I love the chemistry that Daniel Craig and, and Ava Green have together in this film. Every single thing Jeffrey Wright says is awesome because he just has the best voice. He's like... I'm your brother from Langley. It's like, oh shit, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, that was cool. Uh, yeah, everything's cool in this movie. And he's going to be in the newest one too. I know, and I, you know, I don't care. You know, we don't have to spoil the rest of the movies. We don't have to talk about him. But he's he's like he's in Quantum for a little bit, and then he's just gone. Where'd he go? But he's coming back, and I'm so excited. I like that they uh, take the time to try and explain poker to you in this movie too. I think some of the card sequences are a little bit too long as well. But I do like that they take the time to really establish that. We're here to play a poker game, and we're going to spend a lot of time in this movie actually playing cards. Well, it just makes you like uncomfortable watching Daniel Craig uh, or Bond look across the table at uh, Lashif, however you say his name. Well, especially because like, he's not trying to maintain his cover at this point. He knows that Lashif knows who he is, and they're sitting directly across from each other. So that just kind of adds to the tension as well. I like the attempted murder of Bond throughout the game as well, like multiple different times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that goes into some the of the cardiac great. Arrest. Yeah. Well, that goes into some of the great dialogue, too. It's like they spend this entire train sequence and the car right after going over their covers. And then Bond just walks into the hotel and he's like, checking in for Bond, the reservations on the beach. <laughs> um, the only thing that got a bit annoying was just them cutting over to Mathis and Vesper, and Mathis would just go, oh, that's his tell. I was like, yeah, we know. We already talked about that. And they're, they're also standing like two feet behind. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're like the right. Sheath, they're so right. Like, how can he not hear? <laughs> <laughs> like, that's his tone. He does not know how to whisper for a spy. He is not subtle at all. It made me laugh so hard. <laughs> what did you guys think about the poisoning sequence? I, I love when he comes back and he's like, sorry, that last hand almost killed me. And there you go. Another great line. The dialogue here is great. Because I guess that's another thing. I mean, the dialogue pretty much always sucks in the other Bond movies. It's always just cheesy and goofy and sometimes uncomfortable they're just trying to write lines that's going to make bond seem cool yeah that's so a good it always way to leads put to it. being feeling cheesy whereas in this one i guess it's just a credit to craig because he does yeah. cool so naturally yeah so so whenever he says this stuff it feels like his character yeah so it feels kind of natural it doesn't feel like he's forcing it which is a, yeah i think that's a good way to put it so it just and he's just also cool. trying to get under uh the chief's skin mm -hmm. while they're playing poker so yeah. another reason he's saying these type of lines he wants to throw him off his game exactly
So speaking of Lashif, how do we feel about our first modern Bond villain? And um, on that note, do we kind of miss any of the Bond traditions in this one? Like we said, they do try to get away from some of the gimmicks of the other movies. They definitely lean into that classic Bond aspect of the villain having something... I feel like typically there's some type of physical difference or oddity about them in some way. And here it's his eye, but of course, not only that. It's not just he has like a scarred eye. It's that he weeps blood from his eye. So it's like, okay, classic, classic Bond. I get it. Um, but yeah, you know what? Like, I, like I've said a couple times already, Mads Mikkelsen, he's great. I think the performance is awesome. He really does go toe-to-toe with Craig. And it, after, it's actually, I think, a, a very... Props to Mads because, like, the entire movie we talk about how cool Craig is and, like, it's perfect build-up towards the poker game. And then when they're actually sitting across from each other, I feel like he should feel like a weakling a little bit. And it feels like, yeah, he couldn't beat him in a fair fight, but he can still take this bond out in some way, like some maniacal plan. So it feels like they're pretty matched. And I think a large part of that is because of Mads Mikkelsen's performance. That being said... The villain is a bit goofy. He's introduced in a very cool way. It's like he's the private banker to terrorists. Do you believe in God? I believe in a fair rate of return. Like, oh, shit. Like, cool, cool. Um, But after that, it gets a bit goofy. The second, the second he gets the money, it's like, all right, I want you to short Skyfleet by 110 million shares. And he's like, sir, that's crazy. And he's like, do it. And then Bond stops it. And then it cuts it back to him. And he's like, Oh, fuck. <laughs> like, shit. Uh, well, don't worry. Uh, I'll practice my poker and we'll play Texas Hold'em in Montenegro. Like, what? <laughs> like, okay. We'll play that. I'll win it all back. And then he loses, not just to Bond. He could have lost to anybody. He loses. And then immediately they're like, don't worry. We're going to capture Lashif in the morning. It's like, can we do it now? And then he, of course, because he's a terrorist. Yeah, we need, we need him to get a good night's sleep. I know. Before we board him on the And plane. they expect him to do nothing. And as a terrorist, he captures Bond's girlfriend, <laughs> takes her captive, and then tortures him to get the codes. It's like... Yeah, duh, he was going to do that. That doesn't make him cool. And then he just whacks his balls a lot and gets shot in the head by his boss that he fucked over. So whenever you explain Lashif's trajectory, it gets a bit goofy. But you know what? What's a Bond villain without a little bit of a goofy factor? So I don't hate it, but definitely it's like the performance is better than the character, I would say. (laughs) The character arc is so, so dumb. That being said, though, that the torture scene is pretty brutal. Oh, yeah. Makes you hurt watching it. Yeah. I wasn't looking forward to watching it either. I knew that was going to come up. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> Whenever he starts cutting the chair, you just know. I know. Perfect buildup. Because the first time you see it, it's like they're cutting a hole in the chair. And it's like, what is the point of that? I mean, you have no idea when you first see it. It's like, I don't I don't know what that would do. And then he yeah, sits I was like, in oh, it. Yeah, I guess they're just trying to make him uncomfortable. And then you yeah. see him strip naked. And you see the rope come out with the knot on the end. And you're like, oh, no. And even when he's oh, naked, no, it's no. like, what's the point of this? And then when the knotted rope, yeah, like you said, it's like, oh. And then, oh, my God. Ugh terrifying because the first There's time he hits good it, lines there though yeah the first time he hits it it's just like kind of not hard it's just like a light swing but it's like you still we know that feeling it's like even something just like hitting it just even in just the wrong way like something uncomfortable like whoa and that's craig's response like oh whoa <laughs> and then the second time he hits it he like fucking like a like a pro softball player winds up the pitch and then just whacks him it's like oh my god like he literally cannot have children like seriously i wouldn't even touch my like 
area after that ever again. I wouldn't even look at it. I wouldn't even look at it. Um, it's, it's gone. Well, it's probably it's probably a good thing he was in a coma for a while because he didn't have to look at it. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, but yeah, it's terrifying. And you're right, Keith. There are some great lines there. I love because I know I'm pretty sure it's like an actual like, I mean, obviously, I don't know. But you talked about like trying to change your pattern or somehow turn it around on your captor and laugh is a way to kind of get through it. So like seeing Bond trying to make jokes and and instead of screaming, he's just trying to laugh maniacally to kind of like yeah. get through it. And like the way Lashiv is like, what the hell is going on? Like, you're crazy. Um, it's good. It's a good scene. I also love uh, Lashiv's face when he sees uh, Mr. White walk in. He's Cause, like, He immediately switches from uh, like intimidating captor to like, oh shit, oh shit, don't kill me. I think the last thing he says, he's like, I'll get your money. Like and he's like he's not brave. He's scared. He's like, oh, don't worry. I'll get you. I'll get your money. I'll play a. I'll play a Texas Hold'em tomorrow in a different country. Yeah, it's a, it's a great scene for sure. So just going back to the second part of my question, did you guys miss like Monty Penny Q like any of the typical Bond gadgets, or or were you fine with them kind of getting away from that in this one? Uh, well, like we going back to this is an origin, so you know, not to spoil any of the future movies, but you know, we we think that stuff might come around later on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I so I didn't mind it not being in this one. I really was surprised reading through like the critical receptions that like I th- honestly thought that was going to be a huge critique of the movie, but it, it seems like universally everybody loved that they didn't do any of that stuff in this one. I think part of it too is just they did the exact same thing for so many years. It's like Bond walks into office. Bond wants to see M. M is busy, so M- Bond turns to the right and sees Money Penny at her desk. They flirt for a long time. Bond walks away. Money Penny looks at him longingly because she's in love with him. It's like, great. They did that for like 30 movies in a row. Same with Q. Q's awesome. I love Q. I like all the inter- interpretations. But basically, it was kind of the same thing. Like, shows up at the beginning of the movie, gives, it, gives him cool gadgets. Don't see him till next movie. So it's like, I, I think it was just purposeful. It, it worked because, yeah, you missed some of that stuff. But then again, it's like, we got the same shit over and over again in here. It's just this cool origin story, like Keith said. And we do get some cool gadgets. Like, I, I kind of like the car having this <laughs> method to prevent cardiac arrest and defibrillator. It's like, they have practical gadgets, I guess you could say. It's not kind of the goofy stuff we're used to, but it is It is still kind of cool to see him lean over in his cool car, like, press a button, and then this whole, like, method that could save him in a dire situation pops. I was like, okay, it's kind of cool. Um, so, yeah, I didn't miss Q. Money Penny, I don't miss because it just comes off as creepy in the other movies. And they did weirdly do like a Money Penny reference. Did you guys catch that with Vesper when you when they first introduced? Like, because she's the treasury, so she's like, "I'm the money," and then Bond's like, "Every penny of it." It's like, oh wow, <laughs> cool. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I didn't miss that stuff. And to your point, though, it's like even though this movie is so different, like you said, Austin, we still do get some. Of the classics, we get the opening gun barrel, albeit in a really different, cool way, with him taking out the first kill guy. The opening song is great. Receiving his task from M even is kind of different, because at first, she's totally... Well, he doesn't even really get a task from her. He just kind of goes rogue after kind of getting chastised. After Madagascar, yeah, because his response is... uh, he kills the bomb maker and then shoots like a gas canister that explodes the entire embassy and then he escapes and it's like, oh my God, he just murdered tons of innocent people. But then it cuts to a shot of them all like getting up off the ground like, 
oh god that that hurt it's like what (laughs) he just set up an entire explosion um yeah so like i actually thought in that scene that they kind of did a good job of making the propane tank feel far enough away yeah yeah but it it is weird that then on the other side of the guys the entire gate's blown open so i (laughs) guess the blast just (laughs) it it looks like a monster movie it looks like like the characters walking up and then you see this huge monster just broke through the gate like what could have done that but it was just daniel craig as james bond <laughs> he tried to run through it like the drywall earlier in the parkour sequence um yeah but then so m is not on his side he breaks into an apartment with some other great scenes and then she isn't on his side until after the um, bahamas slash miami incident whenever um the wife of demetrios dies and then that's when she kind of sets him on the path gives him the task to go to casino royale so it's like we still get it but before that we got this really cool like butting head stuff so it still felt different too so it's like they always found ways to make it feel new and fun and exciting and it shows her that he's actually one of the stronger agents of that she has even though he's kind of a bear to deal with mm-hmm. because he he remember there, there's that scene where he he gets all he taps into some uh system on the computers and he's like how does he know all this shit yeah he's got her password he knows where she lives i, I love all that he that knows dynamic. her name and judy dench as m oh talk about a heavy hitter casting right there yeah, she's, she's great, great in this movie she's so good i they, love her i love her her introduction where she's walking around and she's like god i miss the cold war <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah she's yeah. great she's great in this and even now we can see the seeds of their relationship i mean it's like, you know, she praises herself or I guess she kind of prides herself, I should say, as being this. It's like, you know, the double O's don't have empathy, apparently, and all that stuff. But like, she's supposed to be the ringleader, so she can't either. But then the second it's like um, the assistant character, whatever you want to call him, runs in. It's like, bomb's been poisoned. It's like, what? And so she she's human. She has, you know, maybe it's because she's gotten older. Maybe she did it in the past. But at least now what we're seeing is she cares about her agents, their safety. And you can clearly see because of Bond's like arrogance a little bit. I, I, you kind of get the impression that maybe she sees some of herself in him, maybe when she was younger. So it's pretty clear they're, they're setting that up. I think later on, too, we also learned that she kind of views him as a son, too. Like They do kind of get to that dynamic. Yeah, so they're building anyway, towards yeah. it. Yeah. How do we feel about the pacing in this one? I think we kind of got to talk about that third and final act. That does become where the movie starts to feel bloated to me. I think it would have been a better ending just at the MI6 hospital. I don't think they really needed to go much further than that. Yeah, it, it just it feels so forced when they bring in Vesper's betrayal. Like I, I don't think I don't think she needs to betray him in this movie. Like I think you can have them kind of falling in love and then maybe some shots of both of them getting bored. And then the movie ends with him wanting to come back to the Secret Service. I don't know. But her betraying him and then one last action scene. And then, oh, by the way, she left a clue. Like, it's all extremely rushed in the final act. It's like they wanted to do it as an origin move so that you can make Mon not care about people in the future. Which kind of seems like you can still kill her, but it feels like a weird choice to like purposefully make him the weird James Bond that like just throws people aside, treats them as objects. It, it does get weird, especially whenever he like gives her CPR at the end, but then realizes she's dead and then proceeds to make out with her corpse a little bit. Like, oh, that's kind of, <laughs> I get, I get what they're going for. Still weird looking and execution in the movie. He's literally just making out with her. <laughs> well, why not? Why not just have Mr. White, like assassinate her? Or something. Like, I don't while know. While they're having their love sequences. Like, well, that seems like a better ending. It seems like, and this is what we have to talk about the third act. It seems like there was a lot of moving pieces that we did not find out about. 
I don't think... It's where it gets confusing. I don't think they were going to kill Vesper. And it seemed like the idea was Vesper hands over all of this money to Mr. White and that organization. And the deal is, basically, don't kill Bond and leave me alone. But then Bond comes to the, the handoff. So now it seems like Vesper has told Bond about what's actually going on. And so then whenever they start fighting each other and that leads to that like Venetian house or whatever you want to call it, she gets... I don't think they're locking her in the elevator. It's, again, there's so many weird moving pieces because I don't think they're locking her in the elevator to, like, kill her. I think they're just, like, putting her there to, like, stay here. We're going to take care of this guy. And then during the action but sequence... she locks herself in. Well, Bond, then he also blows up the support, so it starts sinking. And then at one point, something blows up, which causes the elevator to get off track and fall. And then she locks it just to save him. So it's like they could have both gotten out of it. I don't think Mr. White was going to kill either of them. But again, it kind of points to some weird elements of the third act where it's like, we don't really know that. So it's kind of weird. I don't know how to feel about it. It's just odd. Oh, and just the the whole mechanics of her betrayal feel, feel really clunky. Like they have her boyfriend and she needs to get them their money. But Lashif also works for them and he already had their money and lost it. So, like, at what point does her boyfriend get kidnapped and then she is forced to try and get the money? I, I don't understand the timeline of all these events. And is she already working for the Treasury? Does she get put in the Treasury role? Like, I, I don't really understand any of that stuff. Yeah, it's I think there's there's a way to break it down. I think it's Austin pointed it out. Yeah, it's hard to say what her actual role was. Like, what was she supposed to do in order to save her boyfriend? Because they say that she was a double agent. But what's she actually doing? Because we know at the beginning, clearly, Lashif's job was to get the money. That wasn't hers. But the one thing you could say is the way I read it, and again, no future spoilers, but we'll talk about it when we get to it. I think Vesper was the one that told Lashif that Bond knew the tell. It wasn't Mathis. Um, yeah. So that's how it, that's what it seems like. So she did that. But again, it's like, that's all she needed to do. And then if Lashif had gotten the money, would they have like let her boyfriend live just for going, hey, Lashif, Bond knows your tell. And it's like, I don't know. So that it kind of, it goes to your point. Like, we don't really know how this all worked, basically. Well, yeah. And that's the, the, the gist of the end. Because remember, he's talking to M and he's like, just because they're talking about Mathis and he's like, just because she's guilty doesn't mean he's innocent. And that, but that's, you don't trust anyone. Yeah. That that was to establish that he doesn't trust anybody now, which is what she says. So, I I mean, the way it ties together is cool. Just the whole, um, the way it plays out is, is very clunky. Yeah. And maybe who knows? I don't know. Maybe Mr. White contacted Vesper while Bond was in a coma and was like, Hey, the chief's dead. You need to get the money or we'll kill your boyfriend. So then maybe that's when that plan changed, because also maybe that's no, what it but, is. But they made the deal while they were, while they were kidnapped. Remember, Vesper says, you You're spare right. Bond right. and I'll get you your money. Yeah. So clearly she's already working for him then. Because it is also weird when you think about it that right before the kidnapping is whenever he's like, oh, I see you're wearing that Algerian love knot must be a lucky man. And she acknowledges that she must have a boyfriend. And then after the kidnapping, we see him wake up from the coma and she's like, you can have every part of me. And she's not saying sexually. A bond, of course, makes it sexual. But it's like she's basically saying that she loves him. And it's like, what? So it's weird to go from I have a boyfriend to the next time they're together after this crazy, of course, kidnapping thing is I, I love you. So 
I think there might be an argument that she actually does love Bon. She doesn't love her boyfriend anymore. It's just about saving him because he means something to her, and she actually has fallen in love with Bond. That's kind of how I've always read it, is that the love part was genuine. It's just she still felt the need to save this person because she couldn't she didn't want him to die. That's the way I read it, because again, it's like if the if it had gone well. They give the money, they free the boyfriend, they leave Bond and Vesper. Maybe she stays with Bond. And it's like not about being with the guy, it's just about saving I think saving that was him. her plan. So Yeah, I think that was her plan. I think she unexpectedly fell in love with Bond, but still couldn't just leave her boyfriend to die in the hands of this organization. And their chemistry is always good. I mean, even throughout the Venice stuff, I mean, it is good chemistry. It's like, it is believable. They do, those actors clearly like jive together well. So all of that, but it it is goofy at times. And the main point we made is it just feels too long. So before we go, of course, we got to talk about the final scene. Ooh, the scene, it's just top notch. So now after everything goes down, Bond returns to service. He tracked Vesper, I guess, kind of like left her phone for him. He's able to find out about Mr. White, tracks him to this beautiful villa and calls him on the phone. Mr. White's like, who's this? Immediately shoots him in the leg as Mr. White crawls towards his stairs to get inside. We have Bond walk up in a classic Bond suit, a classic Bond gun. And just, you know, introduces himself. The name's Bond, James Bond. And like I said, we don't have the Chris Cornell, you know my name anymore. It just immediately transfers to the classic James Bond theme that then plays over most of the credits. And it is, it's just perfect. I love, this scene is awesome. It's badass. It's my favorite scene in the movie, I think. Yeah. It feels so purposeful. It's like, you know, he's transitioned from rookie to he's James Bond. That's why he's introducing himself, if you will. So Great way to end a reboot, too, because it's also reassuring the audience, like, hey, we're going to get back to some of this classic Bond stuff, but you got to come along on the ride first. I know. And and it provided some closure with Mr. White, too, that you know, yeah. shows that Bond does not let the bad guy get away. We now don't have to spend the entire sequel movie checking down Mr. White, which I appreciated. Yeah, badass scene for sure. Love it. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up here today. But, of course, just because it's a new year doesn't mean we can't do some podcast awards. If you're new this week, this is a segment where we give out an award for anything in this episode. Keith didn't know the rules in 2020. We'll have to see if he knows the rules this year. He does. Keith, take it away. I'm going to give the coolest eye award. Is it to the guy with uh, one sunglass lens missing? What the fuck was that guy? You know, I actually was... I was actually thinking about that because that, that sunglass thing annoyed the shit out of me when I first saw it. What like, is what he wearing? Is <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you know, he they, it could go to two people. It could go to him, but I was going to give it to uh, Lashif, of course. Was that was that guy supposed to be Lashif's younger brother, do we think? Maybe that's the eye connection. Was that Lapif? Pierre Lapif? <laughs> Golly, what a character. I don't think I don't think that guy said one line. <laughs> Actually, if, if you have subtitles on for this movie, which I did whenever whenever they are talking for the subtitles there, it literally just says quiet murmur. <laughs> <laughs> wow. What a guy. What a guy. I hope he got paid. Uh, all right, Keith. That's a great award. Lashif obviously deserves coolest eye. There's probably not a cooler eye in cinema, I would argue. Austin, what about you? All right. My award today is the creepiest fetish award. And it goes to Daniel Craig as James Bond. Yeah. Now clearly in this movie they tried to humanize him a little bit. They mm-hmm. try to share they try to show that he cares about other people. And one of those scenes is a shower scene. Yeah. Vesper has just witnessed her first death. She's crying in the shower. Bond goes to comfort her and she says, I feel like there's blood on my hands. And his response Wait, wait, Austin, are are you telling me he didn't just reach up maybe and like 
maybe he didn't, he could have probably held her hands maybe, or maybe like he could have reached up, grabbed some soap and maybe like washed her hands for her to make her feel comfortable. Like he didn't do that. You're saying? I mean, he could have done any of those things. Oh. He could have put his arm around her, oh. could, could have done anything, you know, just, yeah. just tried to comfort her a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Instead, oh. he takes her fingers, mm-hmm. puts them in his mouth and licks them. Hmm. So he's getting the creepiest fetish today because he clearly is into some bloody fingers. That part genuinely What is this scene? scene, dude? This is such a weird character choice. What is this? You know the thing that did, you know the finger thing was weird, but that didn't bother me the most. The thing that bothered me the most is get out of the shower. You're in your clothes. You've already had to change <laughs> two times. No, that that's fine with me because because they're they're distraught. But I mean, dude, it's just a weird choice. It's a weird weird choice. Why is who gave that direction? Was that improvised? I, <laughs> I hope not. I hope scene. not. Well, it's just <laughs> weird because it was a really great scene. I actually kind of like yeah, I'm with Austin. I agreed. Like I like that she didn't even stop. Like we talked about in that trivia, she didn't even stop to take the clothes off. She just sat in the shower. Clearly, the water's cold. It's just been running like that for like w- the entire time that he's been playing this last round. Um, but I love that Daniel Craig just takes off his jacket, then he sits down with his clothes on too. It does feel very comforting. And then like, I love when he turns the water on hotter. It's like, okay, that's cool. It's just, ugh. he sucks on her fingers. And then he goes, is that better? And she just goes, it's like, what? <laughs> it's so, it just ruins the scene. And they're playing like romantic music in the background. It's like, no. And this isn't even like a result of something like not having aged well. This is the one scene I remembered from this movie because it's so fucking weird <laughs> back in 2007. I read that some people say, well, it's because saliva breaks down blood. And it's like, yeah, they didn't say that. <laughs> they, he just starts sucking <laughs> on her fingers. not what it was. something <laughs> weird. It was a weird fetish. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Matt. Take us away with our final award tonight. My award for Casino Royale. I thought a lot about this one. I wanted to throw Jeffrey Wright some love, but unfortunately, I just am such an appreciator of craftsmanship. And I felt that today I need to give the best carpenter award to James Bond as well. But it's for when he just really precisely, I mean, you could just see it go in perfectly, kept the structure standing still. Whenever he shot that nail, that nail gun, and the nail went right through Pierre Lapeep's eye, I was like, wow, that is some that is some craftsmanship. I want to see him build a house. I mean, the way he is so accurate with nails, we need to see him build a life for himself and starting with a beautiful home, I think. Dude, that's a pretty badass scene. Yeah, pretty, I love when he's running around with that nail cool. gun. <laughs> I think that should cool. become Bond's signature weapon. That would be good. That would be good. And his code name, his code name could be the Carpenter. Oh, there yeah. we go. All right, we'll see what happens in No Time to Die. I like when he just pulls the nail out of his back. He's like, "Ow!" <laughs> <laughs> like it was nothing. That nail was so long. There was blood covering seventy five percent of it, and it was like he just goes this just long. Like, Ow! Ow! <laughs> <laughs> so good all righty everybody well thank you so much for listening today if you enjoyed this episode please make sure you hit that subscribe button so you never miss any of our upcoming content also if you wouldn't mind sharing us with a friend that really is the best way to help us continue to grow the show at the arnie's is our social and the arnie's.media is the website we will be back on tuesday for a discussion around the amazon prime original movie the sound of metal that's right i'm excited to do that i've been holding off on watching it i'm looking forward to doing that and talking about it next week and of course coming up January 15th, around there, we will be starting our next series in review with WandaVision. So as each episode comes out, we will put out a review episode to follow. So keep an eye out for those as well. Yeah, so feel free to direct messages on Instagram at the Arnie's. Uh, Give your thoughts on this episode. We also have 
of Quantum of Solace coming out soon, and Skyfall, and Spectra coming out after that. And like Matthew mentioned, we have Sound of Metal. Uh, but yeah, so give us your favorite Bond movies and your thoughts on rewatching uh, Casino Royale. All right, guys, I'm excited. 2021 is going to be a big year for the podcast, but the number one reason I'm excited, I, I looked at our schedule. We have like zero Star Wars content on here this year, wow. and I, I could not be more thrilled wow. about that. Well, <laughs> we have Book of Boba Fett and Mandalorian coming in December, apparently. So we're going to make it through most of the year, but then right at the end, we're going to have to talk about a lot of hours of Star Wars. So get ready for that, everybody. All right, everybody. Have a great week, and we'll see you on Tuesday. Da 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 da